Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with Social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with Social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit socialsuitehq.com. That's social, S-U-I-T-E-H-Q.com to learn more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guests on the show today are Jerry Flume, Chairman and CEO, and Michael Flume, President and COO of CreditRiskMonitor.com, Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is CRMZ on the OTCQX. Credit Risk Monitor sells a suite of web-based SaaS subscription products, providing access to comprehensive commercial credit reports, bankruptcy risk analytics, financial and payment information, and curated news on public and private companies worldwide. The products help corporate credit and procurement professionals stay ahead of and manage financial risk more quickly, accurately, and cost-effectively. The company's newest platform, Supply Chain Monitor, leverages its financial risk analytics expertise to create a risk management solution built specifically for procurement, supply chain, sourcing, and finance personnel involved in the supplier lifecycle, risk assessment, and ongoing risk monitoring. Users can assess counterparty risks at the aggregate and granular levels under a variety of categories, including geography and industry, as well as customized customer-specific configurations. The platform features mapping capabilities with real-time weather, natural disaster event overlays, as well as customizable news notifications, reports, and charts. The company has been around since 1999. They're a family-owned and operated business, and nearly 40% of the Fortune 1000 rely on their solutions. I invited Jerry and Michael on because I wanted to better understand the business, plus Jerry's philosophy about building a company built for the long term, the launch of Supply Chain Monitor, which we talk about at length, why they haven't been bought out by Dun & Bradstreet, and Jerry and Michael's vision for the company. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jerry Flume, Chairman and CEO, and Michael Flume, President and COO of CreditRiskMonitor.com, Inc. Gentlemen. Thank you guys for joining me today. How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you, Mob. It's great. It's great to meet you all too. So I, I, I've come across the name 
a, a few times now amongst uh, some investors that I very highly respect. And I mean, just recently, I think you were uh, recognized on the OTCQX top 50 or something like that very, very recently for 2023. So wanted to have you guys on to learn a little bit more about the story. So the first question that I ask everybody on here, and, and Jerry, I'm coming to you first here on this one. You know, if you had to describe credit risk monitor in one line, what would that be? Durable. Not just one line. That's one word. All right, give me one line. Uh, it is extremely durable. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, if you're going to invest in medium-sized small companies, uh, durable is the key. Uh, because if you have patience and, and it's a decent business model, and I could give you five attributes you have to have in a growth stock, uh, a small cap growth stock. Uh, I, I started a hedge fund in 1972 investing in small cap companies. So I've been doing this, you know, 50 years. And I'm telling you, there are certain things uh, that will make life easier. Uh, but if that's your business plan and you have time and uh, you have patience, and you have a decent company and it's durable, uh, you know, you're going to make a lot of money, a lot of money. Now, it is not the only way to invest. I've never traded. I only bought medium-sized small companies. Our average holding could be anywhere from 10 to 20 years. We were intimately involved. We took big positions. We were pretty concentrated. And uh, we were really deeply concerned about was the company doing the right thing, not was it doing the right thing for the stock. It, it never got involved in that. Don't care about it. The stock is in irrelevancy for me. Build the right company. The street will find the most efficient group of barracudas in the world. Thank God. They are going to search out every wonderful opportunity to make money and they're good at it and they're efficient at it. So build your company. And in today's world, as we discussed earlier, the electronic interface between company results and the Internet and uh, services to monitor small caps uh, are, you know, spectacular. In fact, when I started at my hedge fund, I wish I had some of this stuff available to me. You know, I probably, uh, you know, that have no gray hair. And so I, I think it's Blunt. very Blunt. Yeah. And so uh, durability is the key. And now it would help. Uh, and these are the other things I think are critical. One, to invest long term in a small cap, there are five or six things. And if you can get them, uh, you'll very rarely get them all in every little cap, uh, micro cap you buy in. But if you can get them all or get as many as you can, you're going to have a winner provided you have durability to last for 20 or 30 years. And here's the deal. The first one is, and these are not in order of importance, but they're critical. One, you need to be countercyclical. You're going to be there 10, 20 or 30 years. So countercyclicality is a critical variable. We are countercyclical. Okay. Secondly, if you can get it, reoccurring streams of income, absolutely critical. 
we made a fortune in auto replacement part businesses, which are basically uh, that kind of a business. It's a replacement cycle. A lot of money in insurance companies. So reoccurring streams of income or what is referred today in the modern world as SaaS companies. In the old days when I was a kid, it was called the subscription business. Now I agree the multiples are lower because we use subscription. The guys today have the fancy dancy. They call it a SaaS company. Okay. So you need to have subscription income. We have that. We're totally subscription income. Um, you need to have an interesting market. In other words, you don't want to be the premier company in, in Alaskan fly fishing lures because not a big enough market. So you have to have a big market. And um, I think you have to have a very strong balance sheet, overly strong balance sheet. Most of the companies that get into trouble, the small companies are undercapitalized. And it's not because the guys are stupid. It's because if you're undercapitalized, you're making decisions with not enough information and not enough time to review the data, what limited data you have, because you're undercapitalized and you're running out of capital. Okay, so if you can get those four or five or six things in a small company and you now have a really interesting product or service and you have a very straight, honest management team. And there are certain indicators that we use to look at how straight the management team is. If you have all of that together, uh, then the odds of you making five, 10 or 20 or whatever number you need to make over X amount of time uh, go up geometrically. And it's very rare to get them all. Our company, because I designed it, was designed for that. And why was it designed that way? When I looked at this thing back in 98, uh, I'm, uh, you know, it's going to be heretic to say this on your show, but for the most part, um, I think the world is turned upside down, inside out, and we are in a debt and credit crisis. We are not just in a valuation crisis. Most investment crises that I've seen over the last 60 or 70 years are a overvaluation crisis. It, it, I make this example. I, I gave a lecture at MIT at the Biscoe. I showed everybody in the class. Look, I have a company. It's $10 million in revenue. It makes $5 million after tax, 50% after tax margins. Stellar company, probably two companies in the world that can match those metrics. Great company. I go in to buy the company. I want to buy the whole company. And the guy says, I'll sell it to you for $10 million. And I do the calculations. I put down $5 million. I borrow $5 million. It's throwing off $5 million. So God almighty, I want to buy it. But he, I come back and I say, we're going to do the deal. And he says, no, I can't do the deal. My wife decided we shouldn't sell. I'll sell it to you for $500 million. Still a great company. A shitty investment. Okay? That's a very important distinction that has to be critically understood and is not all the time understood. Great companies at 500,000 times revenue are not good investments. Jerry, okay? you're already becoming my favorite interview of all time. I asked you one question and I feel like I, I, I should I should have signed up for your, your business school lecture right now because that was 
There's so much quality information in everything that you just said. And just just to kind of bring it back, right? Because our whole goal here is, you know, we're talking credit risk monitor, right? You know, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to have you back on probably just to, to talk your investing philosophy, even though you just gave a, a incredible overview just now. <laughs> Bobby, but, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because no, I, that's kind of what, why this, why this company was built. Right. In other words, I was rich enough that I, you know, could retire. My, I'm, I'm the kid in the hedge fund. It's, you know, 1998. My, my partners are all, you know, 90 and 80 years old. I'm an old guy. So they, you know, they're all trying to get rid of money. They're, you know, give them money to their great grandchildren for crying out loud. And I said, look, take the money back. I'm not doing anything. And I decided, what am I going to do? I'm going to take a company. And finally, I'm going to build one company from scratch that I designed that makes all the criteria that I am looking for in every company over the last 50 years in the hedge fund. I was going to start and build that. And I had to take it from whatever I thought was the environment that we were starting with. And I think there is a debt crisis and debt crises are horrible. They happen every 60, 70, 80 years. They are very different than overvaluation crises. In a debt crisis, the guys who borrow the money go out of business, but the guys who lend the money go out of business with them. That is a debt crisis. That's what we have in the United States and around the world today. Somebody owns all the paper that the guys borrowed the money on. In other words, company X can't meet it. But now there's a little old lady sitting in Tallahassee, Alabama, and in her in her pension, in her index fund, is paper. The paper is that debt piece of paper. So when that little company or big company goes out of business, she's minding her own business. All of a sudden, she's not worth what she thinks she's worth because her, her, her value has gone down. So she now starts buying less napkins, less bonnets, you know, less pizza. And so demand starts to come down because at the end of the day, how do economies grow? They grow from three variables, population growth, we need to have more people. We got to make more Buicks because we need more cars. Two, the efficiency of producing Buicks. Frank and Larry have been producing Buicks for 10 years. They can now make them quicker and faster for the same amount of time. So it's efficiency. Now, both of those things add up to one to two or three percent of GDP growth. The last driver of GDP growth and the biggest one of GDP growth is incremental debt. In other words, as you put in more debt, what that allows everybody to do is to buy stuff that they don't have enough savings for or that they don't have enough current income coming in. I want to buy that car. I have no savings and I have no income coming in. And the dealer says, look, I'll give you the car. And here's a note. You owe me the money. Now I've moved a future purchase. That Buick car three years now and I have the money is now in the present tense and my debt has gone up. So incremental debt is the driver. Okay. That's the thing right now. If we get any more incremental debt, I don't know how people are even going to pay for it anymore. If interest rates go up, because what stops incremental debt 
is a really critical factor people have to understand. If you go into the into the wilderness in Maine and there's reindeer and you're populating like crazy, they will take over the world unless there's a natural predator in the forest, a wolf. You kill the wolves, the reindeers go wild. In debt, the natural predator is interest rates. That's the only thing that stops Mel from borrowing money. If the governments come in and artificially depress interest rates, they're eliminating the natural predator. Everybody in the world borrows as much as they can. If I can borrow money at 2% and I could get a 3% return, they're going to have to shoot me to stop me. Okay, so that takes over on a wholesale level. So the debt crisis is beyond description. And something happened in the world, and I'm telling you, I made a living and a very good one in this world, and I missed it. I never in a million years ever thought the concept, it never even entered my brain, that's how alien it was. Negative interest rates were so alien to my brain that I never even had a probability for it. What negative interest rates did is they allowed all these junk companies all over the world to continue to borrow money. They don't have enough income coming in to pay the existing debts, interest, or amortization. And so they're going to go out of business unless they can borrow money to pay the interest. So, Jerry, so let's let's take a step back here, because when you bought the business in 98, I mean, we were talking about a time when we're looking at the at the macro uh, yeah. of, of the world where... It's not that they didn't necessarily need what credit risk monitor was selling. There obviously is definitely a need, but those were completely different times. You know, now you mentioned you mentioned the durability of the business and catching us up to where we are today and how there seems to be this confluence of, you know, major debt crisis, high interest rates, you know, the need to really actually evaluate what it is people are buying, their own credit, you know, all, all these different things. So so you kind of already caught us up from a macro and some of the headwinds, oh, or, sorry, the, ta- the, ta- the tailwinds for the business. So now we're, when, when we're assessing where we're at right now with credit risk monitor, you know, what do you see as the real, you know, uh, in terms of the products themselves, you know, who, who are the main target customers that are now looking at you guys more seriously? Look, we are business to business credit. We are not business to consumer. Every single 99% of every business to business transaction is an extension of trade credit. In other words, take these units, these widgets, I send you $500,000 widgets, we send them out of the factory, and then I send you a bill. You owe us $5 million, 210 net 30. Now, that is 99% of every business transaction. So this extension of trade credit is trillions of dollars all over the world. Nobody pays attention to it because nobody even knows what it is, but it's every transaction, okay? So the working capital is the real Achilles heel of every corporation getting into trouble. That's what we analyze in real time for 60,000 public companies around the world in the very, very sophisticated modeling and uh, risk scoring. And then we also break down every single one of those companies 
in analytics because we're basically an analytic company. In other words, we break down P&Ls, balance sheets, and cash flow statements. We don't just spread line items. We do that, but then we break each one of the, the P&L, the balance sheet, and we break it down with the integers, and we do it by annual court. We do all the, the heavy lifting is done in real time all in one place, and we do it for all your portfolios, and we monitor it, and our scores are 96% predictive in when a company is going to go bankrupt. In other words, that's how good we are at it. And we have very, very proprietary data that we've put into it. So now our customer base, 40% or 35 to 40%, closer to 40% of the Fortune 1000, plus well over a thousand other large corporations all over the world that use our subscription model. And then over the last 10 or 15 or 10 years, and certainly now, we've broadened out our coverage on private companies. And here's the reason why that's important. Private companies don't have P&Ls balance sheets to analyze. They're, they're private. So how do you do that? Dunn and Bradstreet, God bless them, figured it out 150 years ago. And they developed by they got companies to send them, not all companies, but some of their customers, to send them at the end of the month their accounts receivables. All their accounts, which is the most confidential information in the world. It's every customer they're doing business with by name and how much business they're doing and whether that company is paying for them. You know, I don't know any more confidential information in the world. Now, you take the uh, General Motors is sending, and I'm not saying they are, but if they were, you take their name off it so nobody knows it's General Motors customers. But now if you can get 20 other companies that are also doing business or 100 or 200 with these same customers that General Motors is doing this, all of a sudden you're able to build a matrix and you can begin to see whether general, whether this company is paying its bills. Okay? Now, because of that, the excesses started to develop. D&B, God bless them, is a wonderful company, very smart people. We compete head-on with them. We share 80% of our customers with D&B. But so D&B has a paydex score because they take this private company data and they can look at it and see if a guy's paying his bill. Okay? Now, as soon as that started, Public company CFOs realize that they get all this free trade uh, credit coming in. And so it dawned on them, if everybody's looking at the pay decks, then they better game, and I mean this in the positive sense, not the negative sense. They need to game their payments so that the pay deck score or the receivable score looks good, even though the financials look bad. Because everybody's looking at paydex. So the first thing is we developed frisk scores that excluded those payment data so that we could develop pure things on what public companies are doing. And we have something very special in there called our, our uh, risk officers vote uh, because they look at our service, which is very, very, not only detailed, but it's, um, uh, Mike, what's the best word? Stable or... I, I would probably just say that the way that we deliver content is very much in a uh, 
a linear researching model where you can start at kind of the most high level snapshot of a business, get a feel for what they look like. And then if you're concerned about them, you can start to dive deeper into that research, finding things like, for instance, much more about the spreads, like that Jerry was talking about, the company news, you know, their payment behavior, what we have as far as that, but even getting down to things like reading the MDNA, the liquidity section, things like that. So we have uh, we have static URLs for all of those sub pages and we collect usage data from all of our clients for over 15 years. And so what we do with that, we see research behaviors in aggregate among our clients, right? We don't do it on an individual basis, but we do it when we see a critical mass of people who are displaying similar research patterns. Uh, we actually modeled that as an independent source of bankruptcy for an analytic. It's pulled into a you know logistical probability uh, engine. And really what we found was that that alone was predictive of bankruptcy without any other components, which kind of gets to the idea that like, these are risk officers, they're outside of SEC fair disclosure under SOX, right? That was one of the, the, the high, high requirements that they had when they went to the SEC on it. So, you know, they, they are allowed to have conversations that normal participants just can't have in the market, right? Um, they can actually go to a CFO and ask what's going on intra-quarterly with sales while they're trying to underwrite another, you know, another trade trade line. Um, that's just something that you and me can't do. My, my call for is that that conversation is very different. In other words, when they have a conversation with somebody, they're having a conversation as a creditor. They're not having conversation as a shareholder. Okay. So, you know, if you owe me $5 million and I'm concerned about that things aren't going well at your company, you can't give me some minor bullshit because at the end of the day, I start pulling my lines of credit on you while you're having difficulty. You're in you're in, a, you're in a bad set place because now you got to go to a bank and all of a sudden that bank's going to say, holy crap, this doesn't look good. We're not giving you loans for free like the trade is. Remember, trade's free. Banks are, are interest and amortization. And if the bank gets tight, doesn't want to do it, then the next thing that happens, you got to go to a credit pool or a credit hedge fund or, you know, all of a sudden. So, so, when our guys are starting to get upset, that's important stuff because they're all over and we have a big, you know, clientele of people now. My, my point is over time, we start developing stuff that's very, very different, which then led us to how do we cover more and more private companies? And we went back to our subscriber base. And we said, you guys got to give us trade also. In the beginning, they didn't want to give it. It's confidential and who are you? But now we've been in business long enough and they've been customers and we don't overcharge. We don't nickel and diamond. We don't do any of that. We give them an all-you-can-eat contract and we give them great service. So we have relationships. They have individual people in our company work with each subscriber. So it's a very, you know, hands-on thing. So um, now we go and we started to broaden out our coverage of private companies. Okay. okay. So we're following, God almighty, Mike, what are we following just on the, we have a new pace score, which predicts bankruptcy because we have enough data now on these private companies that predicts bankruptcy with 80% predictability, which on, pri on public companies, our first score is 96% predictive. And so, what happens is, is all of a sudden the massive utility of what we have available goes up and up and up and up and up. Okay. And 
D&B, uh, God bless him, and, and I really mean this, this is not tongue-in-cheek, this is a great company. These are really smart men and women running that company. But it's a very difficult business model. They already own 80 or 90% of the market. They're, they're a monopoly uh, in the good sense of it. And they own that big cost of that. Something else occurs. Look, I want credit risk monitor to be a monopoly because I have to all a monopoly allows you to overcharge for what you sell. Why else be a monopoly? Okay. That's the deal. Now, once you become a monopoly and you got seven generations of management and a monopoly position over time, you will outprice the product compared to what the market value is. Not because you're bad or stupid. It's just like there's no competition. So they've gotten away in pricing for the utility. They've already penetrated the market. That's a very tough business model. Right. How do you grow that? So that's where we come in. Because so, we now can market. And we don't try to throw them out. We want to share every one of our customers with them. For sure. So, Jerry, you know, quickly, DMB, so everyone knows we're talking Dun & Bradstreet, right? Okay. All right. Just making sure. And yeah. You know, this is a company that's just over five billion. You know, we're we're doing this interview on a, a what's that Thursday, February sixteen. You know, where the company's at, just over twenty five, I think, market cap million. Yep. I, what? Why haven't they just scooped you up already? I mean, your pocket, um, your pocket acquisition for uh, right, right away. I got to tell you, uh, if I was running DNB, because I, you know, before I took bought this company and then dropped it in the shell and pumped tons of money into it. And I had the same, I had the same question. Okay. And I sat down and before I did, I said, Hey, if I'm the president of DMV, what am I going to do here? You know, what's the deal? And the first thing I said, a little tiny company comes in, you know, and we analyzed 300 public companies in the beginning. You know, I look at this thing and I say, this guy represents one one hundredth or 1% of my market. I am never going to drop my prices to meet this competitive threat because it'll cost me three or four million or $50 million in profits to meet this little schmutzky company. So I knew that we wouldn't have them even paying attention to us in the beginning. Okay. Now, I agree with you. If I was running that company as a marketing block, I would have bought them. But that's part of the hubris of large companies. Like, look, the product sucks. It's so inexpensive. Who cares? But, you know, all the normal crap that goes on. Look, the smarter you are, the more you will overestimate what you know. They should have bought it. Now they can't buy it. I mean, antitrust-wise, they can't buy it anymore because all of a sudden we're big enough and we share so many customers together and they're all major companies. They're all going to carry on. Look, when I went into the business, my first selling pitch on this thing to a guy on the phone was, hey, if they all said to me, God, the Dun & Bradstreet stuff, it's so expensive and it's not good. And I said, well, if you want competition, then you got to buy our stuff because how else is competition going to ever show up against these guys? And so we got a sympathy buy-in probably in the first year or two, you know, besides, you know, yeah, you know, we want to see what you guys do. It would be great if you survive. You're inexpensive. And eventually, if you want DMB to get responsible in the marketplace, you got to compete. You got to have a competitive product. I mean, what, one other thing to add to that, though, it's not like there weren't other already, you know, larger businesses that had attempted to enter in against them, right? It's not like we were the first. 
Experience been there. Equifax has been there. Neither of them have really been able to claw much of that marketplace, right? So it's I think from DMB's perspective, that probably set some of the staging, right? They've seen competitive yeah. threats from other much more well-funded businesses that have access to many more data sets than we do when we started. And they've been able Absolutely. to kind of make that in. So Absolutely. I don't think that we've evaluated us as a real threat, believe it or not. And I don't think it got to a point where they actually saw that as a consideration until it became too late to do an acquisition. These big companies that came to up against DMB, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, this is conjecture because obviously they didn't call me up and say, what do you think? Uh, you know, what happened was, you know, they, they're big companies. And in order to break in against DMB's, you know, overwhelming penetration, how can you do it? You need to get to drop your prices dramatically. So another company can say, I, I, if I'm going to duplicate DMB, I'm not going to pay DMB and pay you at the same time, equivalent to what they're charging. And the bigger companies say, well, we got to charge that much because our overhead is somewhat equivalent to DMB's. So, you know, we came in and when we started, we came in, we had limited service functionality, very aggressive pricing. And as the guys started to use our product and we expanded it every year, we throw money back into the company. We plow it back into the company. We get more coverage, more guys in the company, better scoring models, better. That's what we do. And so uh, that allowed us to land and get a bridgehead. And over time, you know, it's Christensen again, you know, it's, What's how do you break in against a you know a competitor? You got to break in, and usually you're going to come with a, a, an inferior product, but at a very very cheap price, and nobody takes you seriously. And then you build up the utility of that product, and uh, eventually they wake up and they say, "Holy crap, these guys are are here!" Now I want to tell you. We're not a threat to them in the sense that I am telling you that when I speak to people on the phone in the early days, they'd come to me and say, Jared, we're taking your product and we're dropping DMB. And I would turn the order down. Say, look, you can't do that. We don't follow all the companies they follow. And so we can never, ever meet that uh, need that you're putting out there. So don't do business with us because our brand is too important. So. You need to use us with DMB. Now, admittedly, over the last 15 or 20 years, we've started to infringe on this total DMB kind of package. We're now following tons of private companies all over the world. So we're now becoming more uh, the utility uh, at public company coverage, which, by the way, represents 70 or 80 percent of the dollars at risk is at public companies. Frequency at risk is with very, very small companies, but it's not as critically important. If somebody goes down on you with five million of a receivable. That's a lot different than two guys going down with, with a twenty five dollar you know, contract that they owe, you know, bill they owe you. So the dollars at risk are where we are. And we've built out this private company coverage. Then something else happened to us. We noticed that our stuff was so good that the corporations started to use us in their purchasing department. There was that credit product we built. They said, holy cow, we're concerned about financial risk on the purchasing side of our suppliers. So we're going to take 
contract with you, our passwords with you, because we want to put a different set of guys into the mix for you guys to monitor for us. And so we started to, you know, sell it kind of backhandedly. And all of a sudden it ended up being 20, 25% of our business. So about three years ago, we decided we were going to design a product from scratch using all the data that we had. We we're going to reskin it and develop it and put it together. And we spent three years and we built this new supply chain monitor product, which is now slowly coming into the marketplace, which is part of our style. We come in slowly. We let our senior guys sell it so we can understand how does it sell? What's the selling propositions? What do we have to change in the service? Are people willing to separate themselves from money to buy it? You know, the million things that take time before we turn this loose to our entire sales teams. And so uh, this new product comes in and we have a pretty good background now in supply side because like I said, we it represents 20% of our business on this alternative product that we have. But here's what happened on top of that. Just goes to show you uh, why luck is very important in, in life. While this is happening, finally, the Americans and Chinese begin to understand that they're locked in a bad game together. And we start putting on tariffs. And the Chinese are very aggressive all over the world. And then the Russian-Ukrainian war starts. And all of a sudden, the purchasing departments of corporations all over the world are now faced with a duality of a problem. One, they've got to do everything possible to make sure goods and services are coming in every day so they can run their business. But they also understand they've got to get their supply the heck out of Asia. In other words, right now, if you we're What's changing in the purchasing world is the mantra that was out there for the last 50 years in purchasing, which is, I want a sole source supplier so I can give him the most amount of business so I can get the best price possible and the best service. So I want single source, biggest bang for the buck. Sole sourcing is critically important to me. Now, all of a sudden, that's become a major negative. In other words, if I buy, I'm making this up, and this, I'm, I'm picking on, on General Motors, but I, it, it has nothing to do with reality. I make fenders for General Motors. I make the right fender for Buicks, okay? Now Buick has to look at it and say, my God, we buy these fenders from you, but you're making them in, in China. And all of a sudden, there could be an embargo, and we can't sell a Chrysler with three fenders. It's got to have all four fenders or can't go out the front of the factory. So all of a sudden, having all your purchasing exposure in one place, which is subject to embargoes, to tariffs, to wars even, all of a sudden, everybody begins to realize just in, uh, having sole source supplying is not what your buyer wants to hear. In other words, you come to me and, and you said to me, hey, I got a great supplier in Beijing. He makes the best right fenders in the world. And we buy everything in the world from because we're his number one guy. I'm out of you right away. I'm, I'm out of you tomorrow. I am so, I'm getting out of that. Second biggest one was just-in-time inventory. was another big mantra over the last 50 years. You know, can you put that inventory of fenders on my factory floor site 17 hours before it gets assembled in a car so I don't have to have inventory.
and therefore my rate of return goes up. So that becomes a big deal. So now all of these supply chains are overextended in, in, uh, in geographic distribution of product, and they are now being required to move that closer to the end where the product is bought. In other words, geographically, you have to move it. Well, what a Herculean job it is to vet 500 different suppliers all over the world for this part. Because you got to go visit them, you got to make sure the labor is okay. You got to make sure the plant isn't on a volcano. You got to make sure there's a, a, a an ocean port someplace close. And so that's a huge undertaking. Nobody has staff around to do that. So the first thing that is, you need a vet and make sure that whoever you're looking at is economically or financially viable. Because if they're not, why spend all this time, energy, and effort and build teams and send them all over the world when that company, even if you pick them, will never do the same amount of quality control, R&D, and expansion for economically sound competitors. So all of a sudden, we can prioritize what you're looking at. And while that's going on, our other challenge is we're bringing in all kinds of ancillary data into this sur this purchasing uh, product, you know, geographic location, relationship to economic viability of the country, currency, labor, you know, all that stuff we can now bring into the service. And we're bringing that in and that's going in to the purchasing side. Now, the purchasing side is very different than the credit side. It's bigger. These guys, you know, it's 50% of the revenue of every company goes through purchasing first. You've got to make product to make product at the sell it. So these guys spend huge amounts of dollars, big staffs, and it's critical function. And so all of a sudden we have this, you know, interesting, interesting product. And it's not because we're brilliant that we thought about this three years ago that China and Russia and embargoes were all going to be part of, you know, we were doing it because we knew it was going to be a market, not like what could potentially over the next five years or 10 years explode as another demand product for us. Wow, I think the it's also just, Jerry, one thing before you keep going here, I think it's just important to also make it very clear that these are differential products in terms of cyclicality, right? And that was part Absolutely. of the motivation more than anything else was that we were looking for another channel that wasn't so deterministic by strictly interest rate policy at, at central banks, right? Unfortunately, credit markets are being dominated, as Jerry said by interventionism by central banks and governments. In the case of supply chain, if it's a positive bull market, they're spending money because they need to develop new services, new products, new everything. They still have the same need to find new vendors or to change vendors or to top of vendors, much more yeah. relative to you know, the FUDs issue associated with, am I doing business with a company that may go bankrupt? At the end of the day, if you can borrow money at 2%, the chances of going bankrupt, you have to be an absolute crap operate, right? You that's like the Buffettism that you could pull out, right? <laughs> so, so you know that Warren, Warren, Warren Buffett said Warren, Warren Buffett said it the best. You have to be in the Hall of Fame of stupid managers to run a debt-free company into bankruptcy. So true. And so, you know, that's what we try to explain to people for credit a lot. The converse of it is if you have no debt, you have to be one of the 
dumbest guys in the world. You know, uh, no debt, you're never going bankrupt. Lots of debt. The odds, I don't care how smart. I mean, I think it, it, there's there's something to be said there. Obviously, if you're you know if you're selling ice to Eskimos and you have no debt, that is still a bad business model, right? But yeah, I, I agree. But I'm I'm just trying to get. In other words, our credit product sometime over the next zero to five years is going to explode because the risk factor at corporations has been submerged by this idiocy that's around the world that a ton of them are going to go out. A well, Jerry, ton of them. Are so Jerry, just play devil's advocate though. You know, you it, obviously there's, there's the, the goal and there's the execution risk right at this point. I mean, I think we were talking offline about that, how that's basically the main yeah. thing that most investors ask you about when you're in meetings with them. So to cover at least the devil's advocate side of things, where does this all oh. go to hell? Where does this go? Where does this go wrong? Right. Like what, what is the downside risk that folks should be aware of when thinking about credit risk monitoring? Mike. <laughs> hey, no, I mean, he's a $10 manager to me. You got to execute. Every time there's a softball question, you kick it to me. I'm just sitting here silently. Um, I, I would say, honestly, that that's part of why we operate and we have the balance sheet that we do right, is that in our capacity, we think we've already jumped the fish from a SaaS SAS model. You know, we're already self-financing. So as far as the runway consideration on burn, that's not a consideration for us. We can stay as a going concern regardless of what's going on in our business for a long enough period of time that if we really operate that badly, we deserve to go out, right? Um, so part of that is about positioning the balance sheet in a way where we actually have the opportunity to get. I would also say the the takeaway for me on the downside is that we continue to operate the same way we currently are, right? I mean, you can look back at where we've been over this period of time, the last 15 years. We're still growing somewhere between three to five to 8% in any of those atoms, right? So regardless of whether or not the actual catalyst happens for us to be growing at 15, 20, 25%, right? Which I think is where we'd like to go. I mean, I, I'm not giving guidance here, but yeah, that's, that's what we're striving for. Um, even if we don't do that, we're still going to be growing this business strictly because of our value proposition, which is always to deliver value in excess of cost. You know, one of our internal little things that we talk about is, you know, 80% of the value at 20% of the price relative to somebody like DMB. And that's kind of like a going, you know, just incrementalism that we always throw out to our people. So I would say the issue from a shareholder perspective is that you're trapped in an illiquid stock that's only growing at 5% year over year, but at the same time is throwing off 30% rates of return during that period of time. The question is going to be, what do we do with the money? What are we investing in it? Is it better to just throw it into the business or are we returning it to shareholders? So that's kind of how I, I look at it. We have to keep yeah. coming up with the right ideas where we can actually invest in the projects that will get us to higher revenue. So that's the yeah. downside that I have on my shoulder finding the right products. Mike's on the money there. You know, it, this company was designed from the get-go to be a stable company. We're in the credit risk business. We're in the risk business. Like, holy crap, this is what we do. And we have a huge customer base. There's no one company. There's no one subscriber that represents enough revenue. The wonderful thing about us is we have a customer list that's a who's who of the world. You know, not going to have it 
have it. And so, you know, we've, we've built this thing brick by brick by brick, and we've always done it. We, we internally generate. In other words, look, one of the great charades of the world is, I hear it all the time in the SaaS guys who are banking SaaS guys. You know, if you can grow your company at 60% a year compounded, uh, and you lose as much money as humanly possible, we're going to just, we're going to look at your gross profit margin, whether it's 40%, and we're going to take that and the growth rate. And we don't care how much money you lose, because no matter what, we will be here when you run out of business. Now, having run an investment firm and a hedge fund, I have a great nose for bullshit. Okay? I just, it developed over time that when I hear Mickey Mouse, that's it. That's the same bullshit I heard when the dot-com guys were around. Okay? I had 89 million VC guys come in because, hey, man, like, we got to grow this company. We don't care if it sells you if the dollar sells for 40 cents. You know who we are? We'll be here. We got trillions. And at the moment, markets turned down. All the guys giving money to the smart guys who were dispersing it stopped. So the smart guys dispersing it didn't have anything to disperse. They're still smart, but they had nothing to give. And that's the game of Wall Street. I look, I was part of it. Every one of my little companies over the last 50 years, we had to go in and do financings and crap. So, you know, like, my God. That's the downside. The downside of the street will never, ever be there on a downturn. Absolutely. All right. So, I don't want to. Absolutely. So we're actually, I'm running right up against it for time here. So my my final question, I'm going to give it to Mike, you know, so I'm going to give him the, the positive. Oh. I'm going to get, I'm going to give him a positive question. Cause uh, you know, you threw him, you threw him, you threw him the hardball, you know, but uh, so, so Mike, you know, to close this out here, you know, in your opinion, wh- where do you want to see the company in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that'll get you to there? I, I think we're already kind of in, in the middle of one, which is like, ultimately, when do we overcome the investor um, inertia tied to the fact that we've had 15 years of the Fed put just being out there, right? And you're starting to see it now with like, you know, there's at least reporting coming out that maybe investors are starting to actually hear what Powell says, like, I'm trying to put it into a recession. I'm not trying to put it into depression, but I'm trying to slow down economic growth. I don't know how we could say it any more direct, right? We need to slow down economic growth in order to get inflation to come back into the mood. So like that acknowledgement by the investor class obviously takes a lot of time from a sociological herding perspective to actually move markets in the direction that we need to go. So I think for me, you know, the three to five year plan, I think there actually is going to be that inflection in the credit product, in which case that alone will be a great avenue of growth. I mean, when you look back at our performance during the Great Recession, you know, we're growing at over 15 percent. So there's there's that out there. I think that's a great catalyst for the business, just aside from everything we're doing on the supply chain. The other side of this is obviously the supply chain. And I don't think anything as far as what Jerry was talking about you know, reversal of globalization, reversal of uh, just-in-time inventory, nearshoring, friendshoring, however you want to describe it, right? There's a massive change going on within supply chains in terms of allocation, in terms of logistics, and kind of complexity reduction, right? You just can't have a supply chain that has to go through 15 ports to deliver one product to you, 
right? That just can't be the new, the new mantra. So all of those avenues are going to occur. The question is obviously how quickly, you know, they, they transition. Um, but I think we're kind of positioned well to make use of that as a tailwind. Uh, for me personally, I think it's about trying to find ways to partner effectively with the right uh, other businesses so we can deliver kind of much more, um, I would say, integrated services. So like one of the drawbacks within supply chain, for instance, is we can obviously tell you about the types of businesses that interact in particular industries, but we're not a bill of materials provider, right? So if you have a specific part that you're looking for, we're not a catalog where you can go and say, I want to look up that part and find everybody who can make the same part. That's a logistics item that, to be honest with you, is not in our domain specialty. And it's not something that I really want to take on because it's going to take us you know, 25 years of screwing around trying to get that data to be effective. Um, so finding partnerships in that sort of a space, obviously finding other ways to integrate uh, data sets like, you know, cybersecurity risk is obviously at the top of everybody's thought. I don't think anything's going away there unless we really do transition to Web3. Uh, and even if we do that, you know, I think there's still going to be massive hacks that go on regardless of whether it's decentralized or not. Um, so I think those are considerations. Obviously, we'll see what happens with the ESG side. You know, I, tongue in cheek, I think ESG is something to be concerned about. But at the same time, I almost feel like this is a, a side effect of the, the bull market to some degree. Like when you're not when you personally, if you take it up to an in, individual level. Right. I can care a lot more about um, ancillary rights of, you know, marginalized groups when I don't have to worry about putting food on my table or putting, you know, a roof over my head. Those are more basic needs that I would be concentrated on if I didn't have them. So I feel like some of these evolutions towards those sorts of risk concerns are just basically because we're getting to a point where we're not worrying about profitability. So we're concentrating on something else. I think in general, as markets pull back, that's going to be the return. And you're already seeing it within the VCs and all their portfolio companies for PEs where they're coming back and saying, listen, you really need to control your cash flows now. Cash is king again. Stop spending money on marketing to sell a dollar for 50 cents as many times as you can. Right. So that idea is finally getting into there. So for me personally, I'd say three to five years. I'm expecting that the credit market is going to be throwing off at least you know, some sort of a, a, a growth perspective in excess of 5%. And then we're going to have this supply chain you know, product, which I expect is going to be even bigger than the credit product in terms of growth rates. You know, It's a bigger unit sale. Uh, it's selling to people who have much more capital available to make purchases, and they don't have to justify everything the same way that a credit function does. You know, in actuality, many times, at least over the last 10 years or so, the credit function has been consolidating versus expanding because you don't need a whole lot of analysts if it's impossible to go out of business. What are you analyzing? You know, like if you're going to spend a lot of time analyzing Walmart, you're just missing the, you know, you're missing the forest with the trees. You're going to get paid slowly, but you're not going to not get paid. Right. So. All right. I'd leave it at that. Very good. Jerry, you want to add anything or, uh, or, or I think that was a pretty good place to end it. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, look, a lot depends on, on uh, Mickey going, on uh, Michael going forward. I mean, cause at the end of the day, this is now a big execution job. Yep. And, uh, you know, I can put my three cents in, but the execution issues that I had to deal with in this company were, are very different and a lot less complex than Mike's. Uh, what Mike's got to do for sure. And so to that point, I mean, like major things that we took care of with supply chain, just to give you some inside baseball is, you know, like in order to 
to, in order to support this product, it's fully API based with, with uh, JavaScript on the, on the website, on the browser side. So building out the infrastructure required to deliver that content to a browser via an API is a huge task in terms of automating everything that we do, right? Getting that plumbing infrastructure done allows you to then move into other markets without the same sort of developmental lift. Right. If we were to, let's say, go into sales and marketing as another channel, which I think is you know, probably a pretty easy slam dunk from if you just look at like what DMB does, they're into all of those markets. It's the same data, different skinning, different use case, but essentially the same, the same end state. We can do that now without having to spend three years of development time because the infrastructure itself is already built to facilitate the browser interfaces. So I think it gets easier as we we double down on the technology, get the stack actually built up to a modern premise. And all of a sudden now we can do a lot more interesting things as a, almost as a, I, I hate to not use SaaS here, but almost as a DAS, right? A data as a service style setup where we're delivering it wherever you want it, whatever platform you need it. Because it's really more about, we can give you the best financial risk analysis that you need and tying that back to the, the workflows that you're in. Listen, whatever ass company you want to describe yourselves as is totally fine by, in, in my book. Uh, but uh, just a multiple at that. You just don't want people to look at you ass backwards. That's really the thing, you know. But uh, all, all, <laughs> yeah, all, all, all terrible jokes aside, guys, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Mike, Jerry, where can our audience go and find more information on Credit Risk Monitor? I, I don't know. We just launched our new unified website, which covers both the supply chain and the credit function. Uh, so we've got some uh, shareholder information there if you're looking for that. But also it's got a lot of information about our products, kind of who we work with, what we do, why you might want to work with us in general. Um, but obviously, if you're looking for anything else, there's tons of K's and Q's out there, too. <laughs> and, and I think take a look at uh, the, the team that works at Credit Risk Monitor. We don't have turnover. Our guys are long-term players. Uh, it's a, it's quite a crew. I mean, uh, these guys have paid their dues and, uh, and, and built a great, great company. And um, so, you know, uh, I, I think at the whole end of the game, the, the wonderful thing about it is we're transitioning to the next level and thank God we get the right players. Uh, you know, if you, you were saying like, what are you gonna do, Jerry? I would say sell. <laughs> You know, because at the end of the day, I don't, you know, nobody's ever going to accuse me of being, uh, you know, uh, taking an entrepreneurial company and then spring water. That's a different set of skills. Most entrepreneurs are terrible at it, including me. Including me. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me again. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. Thank you, Bobby. It was a great interview. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.